When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. The American Vandal podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College has a new series out called Criticism LTD. We wanted to give you a little taste of the conversation because high theory is among the many guests that feature in the expansive critical commentary. In this episode of Criticism Limited, we'll be talking not just about what criticism is and what it does, but whether it matters that we don't always agree. I don't want to be combative either. Like, I don't want to try to catch you out. But I kind of want to know what you mean by criticism or literary criticism. You know, I wouldn't say that 100% of the times there is value in parsing criticism and theory if we are doing it together so very often. Yeah, I really wanted to parse what I thought the term criticism meant. In we'll our, do that. Was in our MLA paper and Tronic was like, no. Let's win episode parse When I sat down with the high theory team, I had already been working on this series for almost three months. And it had never occurred to me until that point that I might need to answer this basic question. And I'm still not absolutely sure that I do. We'll be doing a crossover episode later in the season. But if you want to hear more now, you can check out the American Vandal podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Okay, welcome to High Theory. Today, I'm speaking with Brian Fairley about polyphony. Brian, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Of course. Very happy to be here. My name is Brian Fairley. I recently completed my PhD at NYU in ethnomusicology. I'm going to be a visiting scholar in the Department of Music at Amherst College for the coming year. Congratulations. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. And so what the heck is polyphony? All right. So polyphony, as with a lot of other words that come our way, you know, they have Greek roots. Poly and phony, right? In ancient Greek, those mean many and voice, so polyphony. As with a lot of things, I think it's important to note that the use of the word has varied a lot over history, right? So the ancient Greeks didn't use it to refer to music at all. When it appeared, it wasn't a very common word. It was about someone who talked a lot. So it was <laughs> it was uh, about being loquacious. So that's sort of the little bit of the slight distinction between many and a lot, much, right? Mm-hmm. And it's actually, though, in a way that's not so uncommon 
when considering Greek words that have come to to be used in music. So for instance, harmony, mm-hmm. this word that we use to talk about notes sounding together in a nice or pleasing way or in some kind of way that fits into a harmonic system. In ancient Greek, it was actually not so much about notes that sounded together. It was more about kind of sequential from the, the word for like joints kind of meeting together, the way that the notes in a scale made a progression or something like that. So polyphony comes from Greek, but not necessarily from a musical source. If you found yourself in a music appreciation class or a first semester music theory, something like that, you might encounter polyphony when talking about what we call musical texture. And often it's kind of placed within a set of three or four items. So there's polyphony, there's monophony, there's homophony, and sometimes there's also heterophony, which is a little different, but I'll kind of set that aside. So if you're kind of distinguishing it from monophony and homophony, monophony, one voice or a voice alone, would be, let's say, something that is just a single melody. It doesn't have any accompaniment. Homophony is sort of related. There's still kind of one main melody, but there might be other notes or other voices or other instruments playing along, but they all kind of follow this melody, following it in more or less the same rhythm. Mm -hmm. Polyphony, by contrast, in this sort of setup, is when you're talking about multiple melodies happening at the same time and some kind of coordination. And also, typically, it's described as these individual melodies, although they fit together harmonically in whatever system you're using, they retain a certain kind of independence. So the bass line isn't just playing the root note of a chord. It's not just kind of keeping the beat. It has its own kind of melodic qualities. So that's something that you might encounter, you know, it's a kind of typical definition of it. It's music that has multiple parts that maintain a certain kind of independence along with coordination. Can I ask you before we go any further? Yeah. Because I have a hunch you're going to disrupt our typical definition. Can I ask you to define voice for us? Oh, sure. Because I think my voice when I'm speaking here is maybe a different thing than the specific term voice that you're using. Yeah, yeah. And actually, and I do think there's a point to be made that thinking about polyphony, it sort of invites a consideration of the voice. When talking about polyphony, when talking about polyphonic music, mm-hmm. in some cases, a voice is literally that. The earliest kind of music that's considered polyphony in Western music history typically was music that was used for Christian liturgy. Mm-hmm. So it was literally sung or chanted. Mm-hmm. And you get kind of progressively from there different voice parts. So a tenor, an alto, these names that we have for certain voices that fit certain kind of registers in music. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about instrumental music or music that combines voice and instruments, you still use the word voice often to describe one of those lines of music. And again, you're talking about lines and all these things. There's a real kind of graphical element that I actually think is very hard to detach from thinking about polyphony and the way that it's written. Interesting. And sometimes they even you can have multiple voices in one instrument in several different senses. So the right hand and the left hand in a piano might be playing a voice each, or they might each kind of be responsible for several different voices at a time. And kind of thinking about how, as a listener, you segregate or separate those different kinds of voices is an important part of research in a lot of different areas. Cool. So in this hypothetical scenario where you're learning about polyphony in a lecture or something like that, mm-hmm. 
the sort of heyday of polyphony would be considered like the 15th and 16th centuries, pre-Reformation, Renaissance, when you had these large-scale masses, motets, other Christian sacred music that employed these multiple voice parts. But the other kind of prototypical composer that you would ever hear cited would be Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach. His compositions are, are held up to this day as these kind of models of polyphonic invention of creating multiple different lines at the same time, even as they sound to us still like they fit into kind of other systems of harmony that we're familiar with now. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a typical move that I would do now that would be very typical of an ethnomusicologist, which is a discipline that sort of from the beginning has been committed to decentering Western classical music as the kind of main object of study in the academy. Mm-hmm. And this move would be to say, ah, but there's really polyphony around the world. It's not just these kinds of monuments of Christian and European music history. But I'm not going to make that move, actually. (laughs) I'm actually kind of interested in maintaining a little bit of that tension between this sort of term that's applied to Western music and the kind of other musics of the world. Because part of my work is to historicize the emergence of polyphony as a way of talking about music, a way of talking about music history and the different kinds of music from around the world. In these cases, polyphony was sort of understood as the quintessential feature of European, that is to say, civilized music. Mm-hmm. And it really only required that sense and all of these senses of the independence of the different voices in the 19th century. Okay. So that you started looking at polyphony as not only a stage of music history, but as something that music was leading toward. Mm. So that if you go back and look at the Middle Ages, you had Gregorian chant, which was a single vocal line, typically. And then people started adding parallel voice parts to it. And everything else kind of falls out from there. In the late 19th century, and even a little bit before, but primarily in the the 19th century, people started becoming aware of music from other parts of the world. And people would be like, wow, this music actually seems to have multiple parts going on in it. But we thought that was just us. We thought that was just European music. What's going on here? So comparative musicology specifically emerged around 1900 as a way of talking about musics of the world. Polyphony became this sort of category that because of its attachment to European quote unquote culture and civilization allowed you to have the imperial perspective of the rest of the world. Did it have polyphony? Did it not have polyphony? Okay, I see. So polyphony is like a mark of civilization. Exactly. It's a mark of civilization and even racial progress. In the 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, you have scholars going to great lengths to prove that, um, to kind of show who who invented polyphony, which nation invented polyphony. Was it Germanic groups? Was it Romance language speaking mm-hmm. groups? So it kind of, it plays into the sort of um, the emergence of racial categories, uh, both both intra-European, so Teutonic, um, Romance, whatever, uh, Nordic, etc., um, but also then more more kind of global categories. Cool. So that, okay. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask Please. you our next question. So, how do we use polyphony? Or how do I use it? <laughs> how do you use it? How do I use <laughs> how it? Does how does one polyphony? use polyphony? Yeah. 
Sounds like you might use it to grant civilization. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, absolutely. But the most, the more common uses of of polyphony really go beyond music history or musicology, music theory. Okay. Um, and the reason, partly, why I'm, I'm so interested in historicizing its emergence at a particular time is because that's kind of when it leaps out of the realm of music studies into the humanities more broadly. Famous Russian literary scholar Mikhail Bakhtin mm-hmm. uses polyphony as a metaphor mm-hmm. to talk about a polyphonic novel that contains a multiplicity of viewpoints that all kind of coexist within the novel, vying with each other, vying with the author's own perspective in a sort of what he would call unfinalizable or unmerged kind of way. And it's kind of hard to overestimate like how popular Bakhtin was in like the 70s through 90s, especially. Yeah. So in a way, the way that you use polyphony is on the one hand to talk about how you construct something or compose something, the ontology of a particular work that has these kind of multiple viewpoints, multiple perspectives. But then there's also a way of thinking of that in other ways, like in other kinds of writing, not not only, let's say, the novelistic or fictional. So there is a really important book in anthropology in the mid-1980s called Writing Culture by James Clifford and George Marcus, where they talked a lot about polyphonic ethnography, the idea there being that it was incumbent on anthropologists to incorporate the voices of their subjects or their informants in, in different ways. Can I can I ask you if that connects to the history of your field, ethnomusicology? It's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So ethnomusicology has always had a bit of a hybrid quality of musicology and anthropology. And those questions of representation were hugely important, especially, yeah, in, in the 80s and 90s. Okay. So if, if there's kind of this one way of thinking of polyphony is some kind of quality of certain kinds of writing or certain mm-hmm. kinds of other artworks, let's say, it's sort of something imminent within a particular piece. Mm-hmm. There's also polyphony as method mm-hmm. or like analytic. Edward Said talked a lot about contrapuntal reading or contrapuntal analysis. So he's building on counterpoint, which is really inextricably linked to the idea of polyphony. So if counterpoint is one one melody put against each other, you could say that's sort of the technique that gives you polyphony. For Said, it's something about resisting one kind of dominant narrative. He uses it in his book, Culture and Imperialism, to sort of introduce ways of reading, let's say, Jane Austen or someone like that, that you can kind of both hear the voice of, let's say, the hegemonic imperial view and the voice of resistance sort of at the same time within the same work. Okay. So then maybe building off these two themes that we've established, the historical concept of polyphony that's linked to claims about European specialness and civilization, and this other idea of polyphony as method that's a sort of more late modern or postmodern tool. Let me ask you our final question. How will polyphony save the world? The, the issue here with the sort of polyphony as method is that that does kind of present itself as something, yeah, liberatory or salutary as a way of interacting with other people or with the world. And I actually think it has proven very seductive, countermanding the control of authority with this other kind of plurality or multiculturalism. But I think what's really, really important, though, when someone like Saeed or the anthropologist Anit Singh also talks about polyphonic assemblages in her book, The Mushroom at the End of the World, mm-hmm. is thinking about like what are they excluding when they are talking about 
perceiving things polyphonically or reading contrapuntally? What is it being opposed to? So in Said, he has a very revealing anecdote that he gives from his youth of listening to this Egyptian singer, Um Kultum, as a child, and that he doesn't like it. He has all these problems with it. He believes that the music is quote-unquote monophonic, which it's a very poor way of describing the music, but it is the typical way that Orientalists, ironically enough, saw that kind of music as monophonic, as having kind of one melody going on, and that he thought that that kind of led to this kind of inactive brain okay. versus the sort of dynamic polyphony or counterpoint. Anit Singh, for instance, in her idea of polyphonic assemblages, also uses Bach as an example for talking about the sort of interaction of human and non-human life forms and processes. Mm-hmm. But her kind of counterexample is rock music. It's like music that has a single beat, that has a single melody, and that is somehow progressive. Okay. And what I think both of those ideas reveal for all of their true value as method in the humanities is this kind of persistent dodging of the question of how did people end up with voices in the first place? Like, how do you Mm -hmm. decide which voices can be put into a polyphony? It's sort of like, what is the move before that? Let's say kind of differentiation. There's a theorist named Denise Ferreira da Silva, and she has this idea of difference without separability, that the sort of modern way of thinking about human collectivities has been premised on this idea of separability, that racial difference, differences in in sexuality, gender, ability, nationality, are the kind of salient features of ethical signification or explanatory power. So like why history happens in a certain way is so often attributed to these sort of differences. Mm -hmm. So what she's trying to work her way toward, and which I find myself trying to apply to the question of polyphony, is this idea of difference without separability, the celebration of difference without it inherently leading toward the idea that we are separable in these Mm -hmm. kinds of ways. So when I think about sort of... (laughs) Saving the world, I think, kind of disambiguating the idea of multiculturalism from this idea of separation is something worth dwelling on. Cool. Well, on that note, I might thank you for coming and speaking with us. Thank you so much. It was really fun. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, Sharonic Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio, and Sharonic Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. <laughs>